We are live with another episode of the Bitcoin Rapid Fire podcast. Before we get going and before I introduce my guest today, I want to say thank you to the Bitbox O2 for sponsoring the show. Uh, this is a relatively new hardware wallet on the scene, but I've really been enjoying playing around with it. It's definitely part of my main mix for uh, setting up multi-sigs. And of course, this subject matter is going to be relevant to our discussion today. But uh, as far as uh, hardware wallets are concerned, um, and I do think you should be securing, if you want to attain self-sovereignty over your Bitcoin, self-custody is a necessary element of that. And hardware wallets are a great way to do it. And as far as hardware wallets go, uh, this hardware wallet is open source. It has a secure chip, reproducible builds, easy backup and recovery with a micro SD. It has coin control, con uh, connect to your own node. Uh, what else? You can, you can roll your own seed. It has Tor support. Uh, so lots of really great features. And uh, I've been using it with some people that are noobs and they're finding it really easy as well. So uh, whether or not you're an expert or you're new to the game, uh, this is definitely something you might want to consider for your self-custody needs. If you'd like to check them out further, go to shiftcrypto.ch forward slash rapid fire for 5% off. All right. So uh, today's guest is remaining anonymous. They are known as Seed Signer on Twitter. Um, and yeah, man, welcome to the show. Hey, I really appreciate you having me. So uh, to get this started off, before we dig into the, the, the project that you're working on, and you know, I, I, I love these uh, projects that are emerging in the space because I think this is all about uh, sovereignty. And I, I love how even non-technically inclined people are starting to tinker with things like hardware and building their own nodes and that kind of stuff because they want to establish more sovereignty in their life. But it would be really interesting to know. And of course, I don't want you to divulge any details that you want to keep private, but just, you know, what's your background in Bitcoin? How did you come into this? And, and how did you, uh, what was the motivation behind this uh, project? Yeah. And just real briefly, I, I, what you said about Bitcoiners uh, being increasingly open to being more technical and, and learning new things that they're not familiar with. Like I, I firmly believe that Bitcoin uh, brings to the table in us like a, a personal growth kind of mindset. And for some reason, like this thing that you go down the rabbit hole just encourages all sorts of personal development, wanting to become kind of just a better human being. Um, and I've seen a lot of that with people who get in touch with me who have never tried a hardware project before, aren't exceptionally technical. And just, I didn't mean to, to take a sidebar there, but it's just really cool to see. No, I, I, I love that. And maybe we can hang out there for, you know, a second before we go forward, because, you know, I, I've just, I talk a lot on this show about the changes that this thing inspires in people. And it's really interesting that a lot of people, you know, for a lot of people, this technical stuff was, they always had an aversion to it, right? It was too complicated or the motivation wasn't sufficient to get them over the hurdle. And in many ways, I'm, you know, I'm an example of that as well, but realizing the importance now and, and having that motivation, I guess, amplified in you to push into that discomfort to try to understand this stuff more because it's so important and because it's so valuable in, in the ability to establish greater sovereignty in your life. It seems like a lot of people are doing that. So yeah, I'd love to hear how, how Bitcoin has influenced your journey in that regard. Yeah, I, I, maybe it has something to do with like Bitcoin makes us feel like our actions have more meaning or more um, purpose. I think people talk a lot about the, the hamster wheel of fiat money and how you kind of find yourself just working to be working in a way for the next batch of stuff that you're able to afford. And uh, with Bitcoin, you're, you're able to build something and you realize that actions that you did a year ago or a month ago or things that you're doing right now can move the needle and they actually matter um, because you, you, you can play a part in building a better future for yourself. It's very empowering. You know, I, I hear that a lot about people who have gone down the rabbit hole and, and, and uh, are in that Bitcoin journey. They, they feel empowered. When you feel empowered, I, I think it's just natural that you want to kind of push the envelope and test your own, your own potential and, and see what you can do. It's, I, I love it. Mm. And so how did you get into this rabbit hole? 
Yeah, sure. Um, so I am a retired police officer. Uh, I say that because that's actually how I first encountered Bitcoin. I was uh, a cop for 15 years and started out as just like a, you know, the local guy who would be answering calls on the radio, um, you know, doing traffic stops, that sort of thing. But I had a background in computers. Um, I had uh, done some under undergraduate study in information systems and just always had kind of like an affinity for computers. And my chief was aware of this and there was a local uh, digital forensic working group that was kind of spinning up and, and looking for new people to join. So he asked if I'd have any interest in joining this uh, digital forensics working group. Now this would have been back in uh, 2006 or seven. Um, so digital forensics itself wasn't new by any stretch of, of you know, being, but it was still a very fast growing kind of area of law enforcement, and frankly, like an area of technology in general, because, you know, forensics and cybersecurity and those kind of things obviously have importance beyond just, you know, law enforcement investigation. So anyhow, uh, I got asked if I wanted to join this, uh, this working group. And so I started three years into my, my career as a full-time digital forensic investigator. And, and that was, speaking of like personal growth, that was like drinking from the fire hose every day because you go from a position where you tinker with computers and you've done a little programming to um, uh, you, you could potentially be in front of a jury and have to explain, you know, the binary numbering system or how operating system artifacts work, yada, yada, yada. So I'm drinking through the fire hose, trying to learn everything I can so I can be a competent forensic examiner. And I hear from one of the other guys working in the, in the lab about a case that he's encountered where there's a local kid who has received like a, a gaming laptop or it probably was a gaming desktop actually with like a dedicated GPU, maybe two of them, you know, a, a nice rig with a lot of RAM and everything. And I'm sure he was using it to game, but he was also using it um, uh, at that point to mine Bitcoins. And then he would turn around and use those Bitcoins to uh, purchase, I believe it was marijuana on the Silk Road, which was delivered to his doorstep. He would repackage that, take it to school and sell it to people he knew at school. And he was making like a, a decent, like he definitely needs to be flagged as an entrepreneur because he was making, I'm sure, pretty good money for uh, a kid his age. Um, and this was probably in mid 2012. Uh, so GPU mining was still viable and the Silk Road was still very much so up and up and running. I didn't participate in that investigation. I honestly don't know like what the what the disposition of it was, but um, that brought this thing Bitcoin onto my radar. And I kind of did one round of, of Googling on it in 2012 and it, it didn't make sense to me. I, I wasn't sure if it was some sort of like, it didn't make sense that people would be using so much compute for the purpose of which I couldn't understand. I thought maybe it was some sort of like, you know, if you're familiar with SETI or folding at home, like what are those uh, where they leverage people's computers to, to solve problems, which obviously Bitcoin does, but didn't get it at the time, um, put it down for, I don't know, about six months. And then I forget how it came back onto my radar, but I know, uh, I think it's Vijay Poyapati likes to say that people need at least two or more touch points for Bitcoin kind of to, to uh, come onto their radar and, and dismiss it and revisit it. And for whatever reason, maybe I was looking for investments in 2013. Um, early in 2013, I started looking at it more closely and started uh, digging in. And uh, I, I joined the Bitcoin talk forum and just started reading everything I could there, trying to wrap my mind around it. Um, so did some early GPU mining. Um, well, it wasn't early GPU mining, but it was GPU mining in my house and uh, did some early ASIC mining as, as the Bitcoin network trans, uh, transferred from GPUs to ASICs. You know, I mined all these idiotic coins like uh, Feathercoin and, and all that kind of stuff. And um, did some, like I said, did some ASIC mining eventually put the mining aside and, and uh, I was a 
a holder throughout the bear market in like 2014, 2015, 2016. Um, and as the bear market progressed, I was still kind of accumulating Bitcoins and um, the number was slowly going up and I'm, you know, just a, a, uh, a cop of meager kind of means. And I always, for whatever reason, had it in the back of my mind that if for some, in, in, by some way, if this investment in Bitcoin progressed to the point where we could pay off our house and live debt free, I kind of had this deal with myself that I owed it to myself to, uh, to take advantage of that. So we arrive in 2017, Bitcoin's moving up and it's you know nowhere near its highs. It's, it's in the 2000s. And for me at that stage of my life, like that was a pretty good amount of money and it was, it, it was enough to pay off our house and start kind of a new debt-free life. So I, I'll never forget that day I was at work and I'm, you know, I always had the charts up, kind of keeping an eye on what was going on, kind of on a secondary screen. And uh, it, it's ju it just ate at me. And I just had, I got up, I said, I'm going home for the rest of the day, went home and, uh, and like sadly sold everything. I was a little bit concerned about the four cores at the time. And I thought like, if I lose the ability to pay off my house, because some like developers are arguing about software parameters, I'm probably never going to forgive myself. So um, we can sold it, but the beautiful part of that was paid off the house, um, and it eventually paved the way for me to to retire from my work and be a stay-at-home dad, which is you know the blessing of blessings to be able to to spend those years with your children. Um, but it also I was a little bit insecure about having sold, um, especially like throughout 2017 as the price kept going up and up, like the last thing I wanted to do was think about Bitcoin or, or look at a Bitcoin chart or see what the price was doing. Um, so I had it set in my mind that this was not going to be like the end of a story, that this was going to be the beginning of a story. And um, so I, I went down this like personal development rabbit hole, I guess I call it. I, I read a number of books about, you know, um, happiness, several books about happiness and about personal development. There's a book called The Miracle Morning um, that I like a lot. And I started just on this, this personal development. I started, um, we talked a little bit before we hit record. Um, I started thinking about a podcast. I started a vending company. I bought a uh, piece of rental property. Um, and I, I was determined that, you know, this was not going to be the highlight of, you know, my financial development it was a one-off uh, Bitcoin sort of gain. So throughout 2017, kind of ignored Bitcoin. Um, into 2018, for whatever reason, I, I found myself listening to Bitcoin podcasts again. And it's, you know, I could muse that maybe the personal development steered me back to Bitcoin, but it, it's kind of like those jokes they make about the mafia. Like once you think you're out, they pull you back in. And uh, so I started, you know, listening to some of the podcasts I've been listening to and started, uh, I fired up, you know, my Twitter again and started kind of watching that. And before I knew it, you know, I was, I was wanting to buy the dips and, and dollar cost back average into it. Um, so uh, I think I alluded like 2019, I, I left work and I'm always kind of somebody who has to be a little busy with something. And so I started tinkering around with, with different side projects and stuff. And that's, that's what led me to seed signer here. Right. All right. But before we get into the details of, of seed signer, two things, uh, one, I'm, I'm getting a little muffliness on your mic. I don't know if you're rubbing up against it or something is, is rubbing up against it, but there's a little bit of muffly sound coming through. Um, but the other thing is, you know, and you are, you know, feel free to, uh, you know, say not comment on anything you don't want to comment about, but you know, in, in the times we exist in today, um, I'm fascinated by, you know, people that were basically, you know, the enforcement arm of the state police officers. And I know there's a lot of great police officers out there. Uh, and you know, what kind of changes occur to people that go down the Bitcoin rabbit hole. And I'm just wondering if, um, your thoughts on that institution and the work that you did and, and your colleagues, especially in light of kind of how they're being used today, 
changed at all as a result of of learning about Bitcoin and the the related topics. Right. There's there's definitely some crossover there. Before I say too much further, is my audio better? Is the what yeah. you were hearing? Okay. Yeah. I just adjusted the mic a little bit. Um, there is so I, I think I mentioned you know that I had written tickets for a few years and answered calls and you go on domestics and do all of the things that you uh, you think of police officers doing, but I kind of had a joke in my mind that that after I went into the forensic lab it was a much different experience. I, I felt a lot less like a real cop and in a way that's you know that's not what you get into law enforcement for. Um, but it, it's, it's part of why I keep my, uh, my identity anonymous. It, it wouldn't be hard to figure out who I am. I'm, I'm, I think I mentioned, I don't have Satoshi's level of OPSEC, you know, by far, but it's part of the reason that I don't put my name out there because I do have a history in law enforcement. I, I, I know that there are some Bitcoiners who are libertarian and I, I myself lean that way, but who may not have a favorable view of law enforcement. Um, my work in digital forensics uh, was primarily in crimes against children. And there was kind of an explosion of that in the aftermath of peer-to-peer -peer file sharing. And um, there was a huge need for digital forensic guys to, to help uh, prosecute people who, who were actively harming children. Um, so I'm like, I will never not be proud of the work that I did as a cop. Uh, because I, I know in my heart of hearts that I, I'm personally not oppressing people like the, the people who I helped provide consequences for had, had done pretty bad things. Um, but I think your question is more just about the larger arena of law enforcement. Um, I think the police are unfortunately in a position, police are, are and I haven't done any sort of you know huge study on law enforcement over the centuries, but I think the police in a lot of cultures are a reflection of what the society wants and needs them to be. And our society has shifted over the last 10 years in a lot of you know, overall positive directions with uh, inclusivity and eliminating discrimination. And law enforcement is you know, a profession that's steeped in tradition and is, is slow to change, sometimes for good reason. And I think that um, law enforcement didn't keep up as much with the changes over time. And then as our society, you know, my opinion has gone a little bit overboard in terms of, in terms of uh, uh, putting racist narratives out there. I, I think the police are, I, I've known a lot of cops. I've known a lot of cops. And my, my job put me in a position and not just, most cops really just interact with people in their agency and maybe a few neighboring agency. Like I got to interact with cops um, from around the entire metro area, the entire kind of state that we're in. And then I went to a lot of training sessions as I was uh, in digital forensics and met cops from all over the country, people who are working in, you know, difficult situations up in Washington State and Oregon State and Seattle and up in that area, all over the country. And I can say with absolute honesty that most cops got into it, not because they're bullies or because they enjoy like exerting control over other people, because they just um, have a sense of wanting to do good for, for the community around them. And I, I don't I don't know if I'm kind of addressing what you were getting. I think I, I went off into the weeds there. Uh, I hate to be a cop apologist, but there's so many good people out there that are in law enforcement that I tend to I tend to stray over that way. Yeah, I mean, I think it's probably the case that a few bad apples spoil the whole bunch as far as people's perceptions of of right. state power and police officers are concerned. I mean, I, I was asking. I wasn't looking fishing for any particular answer. It's just, you know, we live in a time now, especially over the last year, where the state power and control is far more in your face than perhaps it ever has been for most people, sure. uh, you know, with enforcing lockdowns and mask mandates and this kind of stuff. And um, I, I was just, you know, looking for some insight because I, I think I think most people are good, right? But most people are in situations where, 
their principles and values are not necessarily the things that always guide them, right? We're, 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 we're guided and driven by our incentives, largely, mm -hmm. especially when we find ourselves in jobs and systems that, you know, uh, supersede our own desires for action. So, you know, and that's an uncomfortable notion, because most of us would would like to believe that we do what we think is right and good, and we, we're the final arbiter, and we make those decisions. But when someone is dangling your livelihood over your head, as everyone who has a job is in that situation, more or less, um, then you're, you're, you're kind of stuck at a crossroads, do you do what do you always do what you think is is most right and good? Or do you make concessions or compromises so that you can find a middle ground between what you have to do and what you would like to do? And I think that's one of the unfortunate circumstances when the state becomes so large and influential is more and more people fall under the purview of its power and incentives. And they have to, you know, go against what their genuine desire for action might be or what their principles or values might be in order to sustain themselves you know so they, this is kind of the corrupting force of the state and the things that that power and facilitate the state which you know in large part is the money is that it, it that's part of its corrupting influence on people because it, it controls the incentives right right a couple of things that came to mind is is with your conversation with michael krieger um i really liked his observation that a lot of people are kind of either not thinking or operating uh, intellectually in autopilot these days. Yeah. And they're just, you know, they see uh, what they see on Facebook, or even if some people still watch the evening news or when they check in with whatever their news source is, left or right, they kind of adopt those narratives uh, without thinking about them. And I, I, I think, you know, police officers are as susceptible as that to, to, as anybody else is. And the other thing I kind of think of, um, your use of the word like the state is a very kind of amorphous um, designation, which which can refer potentially to a lot of levels of government all the way through like, you know, the federal government and our state governments to, um, you know, I was a, a local cop, not even working for a state agency, just a guy working for a local municipality. Um, but there's, there's most of the, the average cop, the laws that they're, they're enforcing, I, I, I struggle to think of them as tools of the state, but maybe in a, in a convoluted kind of way they are. Um, the, it, it's, it's, <laughs> the state is a thing, but I think the state expresses itself, not just through law enforcement officers, but through, as you were alluding to, like the financial system and our media and um, the money we use, obviously that's, that's what, what we talk a lot about in the Bitcoin community. And um, yeah, the, the state is such a, a difficult uh, idea to quantify. Uh, you know, absolutely. I'm not, I'm not placing all the, all the blame on the, you know, the, the police officers and oh, stuff for like sure. that. I mean, and I, I didn't mean to allude to that. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, when, when the state, issues state money right when we're when we're using state created money of course it's going to find its way into damn near everything because money is everywhere right yep. it, it mediates all of our experiences and and most of our actions especially in relation to other people so you know if if that mechanism is controlled by the government then you're going to find its influence everywhere and that's the problem right and and this is why people that start to see how influential the uh, you know the money is they start to see it everywhere you know so it's not just in you know police officers and and police behavior but you're right it's in it's in media it's in science it's at, it's in academia it's in politics of course it's you know it's everywhere and that and that's why there's such a kind of blanket repudiation not ill considered but a, a somewhat of a blanket repudiation on on the behalf of bitcoiners of most things because they realize the the relationship between the money and almost everything and if so if the money is corrupted you're going to find corruption downstream of that everywhere and you know fix the money fix the world has become one of the 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 you know the popular catchphrases in this space and for good reason you know for that reason yeah i'm in i'm in whole agreement like i i wanted to have signs made when we were in the, the big political season um last year like some sort of yard sign made 
like a Bitcoin side that that says like fix the money, deal with the politicians next. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. That I mean, where it, it doesn't matter who you're going to vote for. Like either side, like most of the uh, the policy that that's being enacted, you know, doesn't have a ton to do with those guys. <laughs> oh no, it, it's I mean it's completely absurd. We are as I, you know, you referenced the Michael Krieger episode. I mean, we, we're, we're so far down the, the fiat. It's very much late stage fiat, in my opinion, that we're in. And so you see the manifestations of that and, and how distorted things are as a result of that. So, you know, acting like you're going to change it by voting this way or that way is, is kind of absurd at this moment. But that's why we're here. And, you know, I think this is a good little segue into what you're doing, because the, the solution, in my opinion, to a lot of this stuff, and you can point all those domains that I just referenced, you could point out tons of problems in each of them, right? But as you just said, I mean, the, the, the approach is not to single out those issues and try to solve them, you know, by themselves in isolation. It's to fix the ultimate problem. The, and the ultimate problem is the money and our relationship to it and how we interact with it and how we use it and et cetera, et cetera. And so I think a critical part of that is obviously Bitcoin and fixing the money, but also establishing better ways of interacting with it. So, you know, at the top of the show, I, I did an, uh, you know, there's an ad for uh, the Bitbox, which is a hardware wallet. And I think a great one, but this whole idea of, you know, establishing sovereignty over your money so that both the money itself is sovereign and your relationship to the money is sovereign is so critical. And I think if we, you know, continue to develop that domain, then we, we almost automatically will fix a lot of the downstream problems. And so you've taken it on yourself to, you know, take a certain approach to that solution, because one of the concerns or one of the considerations with uh, hardware that is built by somebody else is, well, I may not know everything there is to know about what constitutes, you know, this piece of hardware. And if it's going to be securing my money and my wealth, then perhaps that's a blind spot, you know, and certain people will want to have that level of kind of, you know, uh, specific control over every element of, the, of this stuff. So why don't you uh, kind of give me the, the spiel on the, on the seed signer now, and we'll break into, you know, the, Im the importance and implications of DIY hardware. Sure. Um, and probably it makes sense to talk a little bit more about the, the backstory that led me to seed signer, which was, um, my security setup, <clears throat> it, if I'd had maybe a different security setup in 2017, I think maybe uh, I might not have sold when I did or everything that I did. I think like your security setup can contribute a lot to your peace of mind and how comfortable you are holding the assets you're holding. Um, so as I think I said, you know, I was buying a little bit of, of Bitcoin throughout like 2018 and 2019. And I, at the time, I wanted to be in some sort of uh, bifurcated, probably isn't the best word, but some sort of setup where your private key is split and it's in multiple locations, like, you know, trusted friends, house or safe deposit boxes or relatives or whatever you pick. I wanted the ability to access my Bitcoin to be split up over multiple different geographic locations. And there is a website called bitaddress.org, which it, I, I think it's still up, it may not be, but it was kind of one of these Bitcoin toolkit websites where, you know, if you put your browser or your computer in airplane mode or go offline, you could download the website, and maybe run it on an offline computer, which is what I, I believe I did. Um, you could use, not deep in the cryptography, but you could use something called Shamir's secret sharing to break your private keys up into multiple pieces. And um, that was the security setup that I'd come up with uh, where I'd used their sharing scheme to break the private key up into multiple pieces. And I had those spread out over a geographic um, distribution. But again, you get back to, you know, what if, what if there is some sort of Trojan horse or backdoor in this bitaddress.org website, even though it's been looked at by other people over time um, I was really motivated to get to native multi-sig, which was now in the protocol. And tools were just coming online um, that were making that easier and easier. CASA is one of them. Um, several others have kind of come up over the last six to 12 months. But Spectre Wallet is 
um, the one that I came across. I was listening to a, a Stefan Libera podcast. He was interviewing uh, a gentleman whose name is uh, Michael Flaxman, who does some security research and had produced this uh, paper called the 10X Bitcoin Security Guide. And it was a great podcast. And one of the things he talked about uh, in that podcast was Spectre Desktop and, and what Spectre was doing. So after I heard the podcast, you know, I found his paper and read it and downloaded Spectre. And I kind of started making plans to generate my own multi-sig setup, you know, from the very beginning using entropy from, you know, picking the seed words out of a hat, et cetera, et cetera. Takes a long and, time to cut to cut those seed words, doesn't it? <laughs> well, the the way there's a there's a website called Seed Picker. I think it's seedpicker.net, maybe. If you Google Seed Picker, it'll come up. Um, and Seed Picker has a little bit different scheme where I can't remember if you cut out the words or not. It's not the full list of words. You combine dice rolls right, and right. some of the words, and you kind of use a lookup table to get to the the 2048 words, but sure. yeah, you're right. There, there is some effort into it. There was just a, a thread on Twitter this morning. I, I was seeing that uh, Michael Flaxman was trying to find some place that he could just like purchase the 2048 seed words, just like in bulk already cut out because it's such a pain to do. I saw that, but, I, but then there's the trust element. Like, how do you know they're the, they're all the right I, seed words, you know? I totally agree. And he played it down and I, I kind of understand both arguments. Like he, you know, his argument was if there were a few duplicates, you know, there's still enough entropy there that it doesn't matter. But I, if you're going to go through the trouble of it, like most of us want to start from, you know, the most secure place if we're doing it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So anyhow, I, I, I downloaded Spectre and you have to have hardware wallets to use with Spectre. So I started looking at the ones they were compatible with. And I noticed that Spectre has this uh, DIY or do-it-yourself project where they take a publicly available development board that's basically like a board that you'd find in a mobile phone. You know, it's a touch screen and it has USB ports and it has a micro SD card slot, basically a cell phone board. And you attach a, uh, a barcode and um, QR code scanner to that. And with the software that they develop, you kind of build your own signing device. And I, I can talk more about it later, but it gets into the, the it was a new model in me because with Spectre by default, it doesn't store your private keys when you power the device off. Um, we're we're kind of used to the model that Trezor and uh, Ledger and some of the other hardware wallets have presented us with is that when you first power the device on, it creates some sort of entropy that creates your private keys and then it stores your private keys on that device. You may back them up with a 12 or 24 word seed phrase, but we're kind of used to this idea of the private key being stored on a hardware wallet. And Spectre kind of flipped that around and encouraged people to generate their own entropy or bring their own, their own seed phrase. And when you power the device on, you enter the seed phrase into it and you can then sign transactions with it. But like I said, when you disconnect power and shut it down, uh, your private key goes away. So um, another kind of concept that the DIY brought onto my radar was air gap signing which was after you have your, your multi-sig set up and you go to sign a transaction, um, Spectre being the, the kind of wallet coordinating software that communicates with the Bitcoin protocol will compose a transaction that's referred to as a partially signed Bitcoin transaction. And it will, Spectre will communicate that to their DIY wallet via one or more QR codes, depending on the amount of data that's contained in the uh, partially signed transaction. And then you use the scanner on the Spectre to scan in the data for the transaction. You can review it on the screen. And if you choose to approve it, the Spectre on its screen generates QR codes that return that partially signed transaction back to the, the wallet, but it doesn't communicate the private key in any way. It just basically proves that it knows the private key. And that really resonated with my background in forensics um, just as a more secure way of doing things. And that first time that I scanned the QR codes in, approved the transaction, and then held the, uh, the wallet screen up to my, my computer's webcam, and it scanned in you know, the, the QR codes, and the screen magically recognized you know, that 
the particular signer that I had been trying to sign with had now approved the transaction. It was like a revelation to me. Like it was like mm -hmm. the first Bitcoin transaction I'd sent when you see the money move from one place to another, or even the first lightning transaction that I'd sent. It was just like, it, it was on that level of just, this is really cool stuff. Yeah. Um, so I, I, yeah, I, I have a, I have a Kobo vault that kind of, you know, instills the same feeling, right? When you have a yeah. partially signed Bitcoin transaction, you air gap QR to sign it. And it's, it's a really cool experience. Yeah. And they're, they're one of the companies that's kind of working to move, move things forward with it. Um, so uh, I was excited about the DIY. I saw that uh, Michael Flexman had, had tweeted out, like, I love this wallet, but there's no enclosures for it out there or no cases for it. And I've tinkered with 3d printing and I have a 3d printer at home. So um, I designed like a very simple enclosure for just the basic two components, the, the controller board and the scanning device and kind of started tweeting out about it and, and offered to send him one and offered to send the Spectre devs one. And that's how I first got in touch with uh, Stepan with, with uh, Spectre. And he was like very encouraging, very cool about it and uh, ended up sending him I think one or two of the enclosures and um, started selling them. So I, you know, got into it and so then, just stop you, stop you for one second. Yeah, yeah. I'm getting the, the muffling back on your mic. I don't know if you're rubbing up against it again or something. Oh, is, it must something's be rubbing up again. against it. I'm going to try to slightly adjust here. Um, so after I, I built this enclosure and I was just exchanging a few brief DMS with Michael Flaxman, he um, mentioned this idea that he had for a, um, a little Raspberry Pi Zero. I don't know if you're familiar with Raspberry Pi Zero, but it's like the typical Raspberry Pis that people use to, um, to operate nodes. There's an even smaller version of the Raspberry Pi that's, that's like less than the size of a credit card. And using one of those, um, the reason he'd selected that one because they make a very particular model that doesn't have any Wi-Fi or Bluetooth capability, and it doesn't have an Ethernet port, so it's really just an isolated device, mm -hmm. which makes it, you know, those those are security advantages that it has no wireless capability and no really like networking capability. Um, to use one of those devices to, if you're generating your own entropy and you're, you know, digging your hand in that hat full of 2,048 words, if you pick the first 11 words or the first 23 words. Um, the last word in a seed operates as a kind of checksum mm -hmm. that validates, you know, the previous words in the seed phrase. So he was talking about writing a script to be able to use one of these little Raspberry Pi offline computers to calculate the last word of a seed. Um, you know, being able to do it in a, a, a trustably secure way because, you know, you know that that computer is not going back to the internet. It's never been on the internet. It doesn't have the ability to be on the internet. So he, he sent me a link to like a little, it was like an add-on for the Raspberry Pi Zero that was like a little gaming controller that had a screen and a joystick and a few buttons and said like, you know, you could work it out so that you could make letters appear on here and you could pick the letters and it would be a standalone kind of thing. Um, and he said he didn't have the time for it uh, at the time uh, with his other work. So I just got on Amazon and ordered a couple components and and got them home. And for me, it was, you know, another one of these uh, uh, personal <laughs> development things, because I, I had taken a couple classes in Java, like 20, literally, literally 20 years ago, and had never really done anything with the programming, but I was familiar with, you know, the concepts and object oriented programming and stuff. And I signed up for I think it was a Udemy course on Python, because that's uh, one of the native languages in the Raspberry Pi. And it was just baby steps. Like I, I tried to see like, you know, can I get the demo code that comes with this little screen and controller combo to work? And once I can, you know, if I figure out how to get the demo code to work, can I get uh, letters appear to there? Can I get the, the controllers to be able to be used to cycle through the letters? Can I get it to, you know, remember words? Can I get, you know, and just these baby steps of getting it all to work and took a few weeks to do that and got like a working deal to where you could use it to calculate you could use it to enter your first 11 or 23 seed words and use it to display on the screen the 24th word, thereby, you know, you'd be generating seeds in a, in a pretty secure way, not exposing like your seed words to a computer that had been connected to the internet. Because um, like the, the model with that website I mentioned, Seed Picker, is that 
you put your computer maybe in airplane mode or you download a copy of it and run it on the computer and, and it'll give you the last word of your seed phrase. But, you know, and with the kind of the background in digital forensics, you start to wonder like, you know, is, is, are my seed words going to end up in like the web cache somewhere or even in memory? Or what if there's some sort of key, key logger on my system or some sort of memory scraper? You know, you, you just kind of, your mind goes crazy with all these ideas of like, how could my seed be compromised through this process? Mm -hmm. um, so anyhow, so after I, I got the, the, um, the programming done to calculate the last word, you know, I wrote another little program to where you could roll dice and generate a private key that way. But then I got to thinking, you know, I love the DIY so much, but what if I attached a camera to this Raspberry Pi Zero? Could I, you know, figure out how to ingest QR codes and parse those, you know, partially signed transactions? And with the seed phrases that you could already enter into the device, you know, could I sign transactions? And, you know, one of the big questions was, is the screen going to be big enough to communicate data back to Spectre or another wallet? Um, because the screen itself is only 240 pixels by 240 pixels. So there's, there's not a ton of real estate um, to use. But anyhow, so I, again, baby steps. And I started kind of publishing proof of concepts on, on Twitter. Like, look, I you know, was able to scan this QR code with a Raspberry Pi camera. I'm able to, to scan in you know, a, a Bitcoin address or display a Bitcoin address on the on the screen and you know it just it it i dug into it and eventually like produced a proof of concept where it was there were bugs but it was actually able to you know do the same thing that the specter diy was but with um with hardware that one of, one of the goals of seed signer is to do it with hardware that is significantly less less expensive mm -hmm. so that's uh yeah a couple tangents there but yeah <laughs> cutting this back in after the fact, because I re-listened to the episode and uh, I just wanted to put a bow on this for people so that they kind of can fully understand what it is you've been doing and, and maybe some of the implications of it. So the idea here is that you've created an enclosure to house certain hardware. And so you've put them together so that you have generic parts, which consist of a camera and then the Raspberry Pi and then a screen. And so all those things go in the enclosure that you've designed and, and 3D printed. And that device can both help you generate a seed and then it can help you sign uh, Bitcoin transactions that you've composed, let's say, Inspector. So this is a you know, completely DIY where you can build these parts and it'd be great if you could share, you know, if, if you've got them in other places other than Amazon, where you got them, um, where you don't have to rely on trusting anybody. And the kicker here, which you mentioned, but I think bears repeating, is that every time you use it, you input your seed phrase because it does not have a secure element that stores your seed phrase. And so, you know, perhaps for people that use Bitcoin very often, it's, it's maybe not the most practical solution, but for people that, you know, are using it less often, uh, it's a very interesting approach to uh, security and trustlessness and that kind of stuff. Have I characterized or summarized, uh, you know, everything correctly there? Yeah, all those things are true. Um, all those things are true. And especially so that like, if, if you're somebody who's set, setting up a wallet to do frequent transactions, you know, to whatever, pay invoices, gamble online, whatever you do. Um, yeah, it, it's, unless you leave it turned on, it's gonna be onerous. Now, once you get the, once you get the seat in there, the signing process is, is relatively simple. Um, but yeah, once, once the power goes away, the seat and the private key go away, so you'd have to re-enter it. Um, I, on the horizon, we have some ways that maybe we're gonna try and decrease that pain point. Uh, but you also are, are very accurate to point out that there's not a secure element. That's not a, a feature of the platform. So that's why we, we don't offer the option of remembering the seed when, when the device is turned off. Right. And so you can, we talked in, you know, as we were saying already, you can draw your own seed from cutting out your seed words, the painstaking process of doing that and, and pulling them out. You generate the checksum on the device and then you input the seed anytime you want to use the device to sign a transaction, right? That's 
pretty much the value proposition of, of going at it this way, right? Right, right. Um, and can you give me an idea of how much the components are? Like if, if someone was interested in putting this together, both how much the components are and what kind of, you know, time or expertise is required to actually, you know, put it all together, screw in, screw it into the enclosure and, and get going? Sure. The, um, it's a little tricky with, uh, you know, United States people versus European people versus people in other places. But most people that I've talked to generally agree that you can get the components for less than $50. Um, the Raspberry Pi, like those kind of vary wildly. Um, there's a chain close to where I live called Micro Center where you can get one of those pies for $5. But you see them, you know, on other platforms because the Pi, it's a Raspberry Pi 1.3, which is a very specific version that can be a little hard to find. And because they're not as common, I think on some of the platforms, they're a little more expensive up to 10 or 15 maybe. Um, the, the screen with the button controls is made by a company called Waveshare. Um, I believe they ship global, global, but they also have resellers. That is probably the most expensive component. I think it's like $15. Um, and then the camera is just a super generic Raspberry Pi camera. Uh, I try to steer people towards two brands because they tend to fit in the enclosure. Uh, there's one called Aoken and one called Avipal, I think. They're on Amazon here in the States. Um, I think some people have found them on uh, uh, AliExpress. And I know that on some of the like DIY hardware sites in, in Europe and South America, people have found them there too. The enclosure is probably the tricky part. You don't absolutely need it for the uh, functionality, but obviously it's nice to keep everything together. The files to print it, um, we didn't talk about this, but I just open sourced those last week um, in part due to the great conversation you had with Mike Krieger. Um, so, those, uh, unfortunately, there it requires a little bit more rare, more complex type of 3D printer called an SLA or resin printer to do the, the buttons and the joystick. The case that goes around the actual device can be printed with a more common 3D printer that most people have access to. Um, what it costs to get those printed, I, I couldn't say what like third parties would charge, but we're in the process of, of getting the uh, enclosure for sale with a vendor in Europe, as well as CryptoCloaks has signaled that they're interested and they're going to offer it on their website. Um, that's going to be listed at $35, but that's got a little bit of a premium built into it to incentivize, like, you know, continued development and stuff. But if you had your own printer, uh, you know, it's, it's pennies on the dollar to print. Um, it's right. just that not a lot of people have them just yet. Right. And I didn't notice it on your website, but could you put like a parts list so that, you know, people can, you know, seek them out or links to Amazon, something like that? Is that something you have in mind or is there a reason why it's not there? It, I think it's on the, on the GitHub there. Oh, okay. Okay. I believe on the GitHub, like in the general readme page, there should be um, s some more specifics because WaveShare, the company that makes the screen makes several models of those. And to have the right number of pixels, um, you just have to be careful what you pick out when you're buying it. Right. And when you have all the parts, what, what kind of a, you know, how long for assembly, basically? Yeah, the, the biggest uh, hurdle for people is soldering. So the Raspberry Pi Zeros, that version 1.3, as well as the other versions of the Pi Zero, don't typically come with those GPIO pins that you see sticking up on the, the larger Raspberry Pis. So um, have to get some of those pins, which they're, they're cheap, but it's another thing. And then to be able to solder it, it's not a complicated process, but a lot of people haven't done it before. Um, some people in the, in the Telegram chat have found some workarounds where there are some other products where you can attach the pins uh, with a hammer. It's a, it's a product that like the metal expands into the, into the uh, receptacles on the Pi Zero when you, you know, put it in a jig and, and tap on it. Um, but to get back to your original question, you know, it's 10 minutes to solder, probably, probably like just learning how to solder a little bit. And it's not complicated to do, but 
um, with some YouTube videos, most people could do it. So 10 minutes to solder it together. Um, and from then it's just kind of putting the pin, putting the, the screen on the GPIO pins and uh, attaching the ribbon cable for the camera. You can get the whole thing done in 20 to 30 minutes if like you have everything there and you're just like assembling, including the case. But it's, uh, uh, if people who are listening can look in, I need to put a link. There's I'm, what I'm getting at is I put a, a video in my Twitter feed of just like an assembly and it goes through from start to finish, including the soldering, like what the process looks like. I'll make sure and put a link to that on the GitHub page just so it's available for, for people to see. But it it's not a super involved process. The, the soldering, like I said, is the probably the biggest mental hurdle for, for people. Right. So you pick up the generic parts and or case if you don't print it yourself. Once you have them all, you're looking about 30 minutes and that investment in time and resources gives you a non-internet connected you know, uh, signing or seed generate, seed generating and signing device that you can use to, you know, sign transactions and, and do it all trustlessly. And of course, without, you know, the, the interesting distinction here is not having the device keep your seed, but uh, inputting your seed every time you want to use it. So uh, thank right, you for clear. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, it's, it's kind of one of those don't be evil versus can't be evil things. So because right because the device has no way to communicate outside of the QR codes. Um, I mean, it's technically possible for, for a private key to be communicated via QR code, but that would require probably us inspector to be colluding and it gets kind of, you know, far-fetched from there. Yeah. Um, but I just want to point out the whole, people may wonder why the whole air gap thing is significant or important. And I think that a lot of the other signers are going to move this way down the road. I think you'll see, supplemental products that'll be offered by uh, some of the other hardware wallet companies to follow kind of what um, the Spectre DIY and uh, it, I'm blanking on it, but the hardware wallet you said you had familiarity Cobo. with. Yeah. Cobo Vault. Yeah, the Cobo Vault does with this. Um, I, I retweeted something the other day that was such a simple statement that's obvious, but it, a lot of people don't realize this. Something that's not USB connected is just more secure than something that is USB connected and something that you know doesn't have network connectivity, even the capability of it is just more secure than something that does. It's, mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's a little bit of nuance. And it's something that with my background in forensics, because where I worked, we operated an entire network that was entirely offline that never touched the internet. And that was just to kind of be confident that the data we were working with was secure and wasn't gonna, you know, reach out into the public or anything. And also um, it, an important principle in forensics with mobile phones is isolating the device from wireless networks, be that Bluetooth or the cellular network or Wi-Fi or anything. So we actually had a special room called a Faraday enclosure where we would go in with a mobile phone to, to work on it. And as soon as you step into that big metal room and close the door, you're isolated from you know any network and it, it that kind of principle of air gapping and not being on a network kind of just, it, I, it might make more sense to me inherently because I've just been in that mode for a good part of my life. But I, I just throw it out there as I, it's a real benefit for this security model. And I think we're going to see other wallets, uh, you know, developing similar solutions over time. Yeah, I, I, I'm inclined to agree with you, <clears throat> excuse me, agree with you. And uh, yeah, thank you for, uh, you know, summarizing and reiterating some of that, because I, I just, I wanted to come back and hit it again for those people that aren't too technically inclined that they're, you know, may have had their eyes or ears gloss over a little bit on, you know, when you first explained it. So just to, to really hit home, you know, the value proposition of a device like this and how cool it is that pretty much anyone can get the parts and anyone can do it. And you don't have, you know, the very, very trust minimized way of, you know, generating a seed and interacting with the Bitcoin network. So hopefully uh, that clarifies it a little bit for people and they don't mind this uh, sloppy edit into the original uh, conversation. Not at all. And if, if anybody's, you know, curious, but still a little intimidated, I think I mentioned it before, but we have a, tele te have a telegram group where uh, there's plenty of people that are willing to offer advice and even cheerlead a little bit if uh, anybody needs a little encouragement.
Awesome. All right. Back to the original. <laughs> <Good stuff. laughs> so I'm looking at the, the website now. So you've got the orange pill enclosure, you've got the Spectre DIY enclosure, and you've got the assembled Spectre DIY, right? Right. And that's so, um, a small part of what I do is just for people who would like a Spectre DIY who, you know, don't feel comfortable assembling the parts or frankly, they're too busy or for whatever reason, um, they just want to receive one altogether. Yeah, I, I send a few of those out. It's, it's not a lot of them, but yeah. But doesn't the assembled Spectre DIY kind of defeat the purpose of the DIY? You know what In, I mean? Yeah, well, no, no, I totally like, get it. Are, basically, we're back to like kind of trusting you that everything in there is what it's claimed to be, right? Which is now, kind of where we're at with other hardware wallets. The one um, little caveat I would say that, uh, and some some hardware wallets do have open source code, but the, the code for Spectre DIY is fully open source. So there's that. And if um, you wanted to reload the firmware after I shipped it to the device, like there, there shouldn't be any problem doing that. But what, what you're saying is still like, you know, supply chain risk and there's, right. like you're, you're reintroducing some of the risks that the whole thing was, you know, introduced to avoid. Right. Yeah, exactly. So what, what's it been like, you know, you've been, you've been making these things. Uh, it seems like it was fairly new. Uh, what do you have planned, you know, for the future? Or how do you see this progressing? Um, right now, there's like a, a functioning, you know, it's it's a functioning tool. There have been some kind of early comers who have uh, kind of produced some how-tos and validated that, yeah, it's working like he says it's working. Um, so in the future, it's just kind of like refining it to make it more simple for people to um, get together to make the enclosure and, and, you know, other people may, you know, design their own enclosures or you can use it without an enclosure, but to make the enclosure more available as, you know, partly like an incentive for people to, that that's, looks cool. I want to be able to build this thing, but it, it's really about refining the product. It, it's just getting it to the point where it was a functional signing device um, felt to me like a pretty significant accomplishment. And I owe a lot to Stepan over at uh, Spectre for it. It uses a library, a Bitcoin library that he wrote called Mbit. And even beyond that, like he was very generous with his time and attention to provide me with, you know, kind of technical guidance and, and even some examples of his his library being implemented. Um, and that and just other people along the way that have have kind of, you know, said just encouraging tweets saying, man, that looks like a cool idea. Like keep going with that. Like it all that kind of stuff moves the needle a little bit so it's it, it was it was uh it, it was it felt like it was a collection of of a lot of people kind of coming in with different ideas and how the user interface would work and ways to improve it because there's been one or two releases that have been kind of bug fixes and and feature enhancements that people had asked about so it's like i i love that it it's a community kind of uh steered kind of thing at this point what are your impressions about where this whole thing is headed in the future? You know, I referenced earlier that Bitcoin, I think because of what it represents and because of how important it is and other variables, you know, people are going further into, they're further more motivated than ever to uh, push past whatever discomfort or intellectual hurdles they may have been held back by in the past. Do you think this will forever kind of be a niche thing where, you know, uh, yeah, tinkerers and hardware people decide to do it themselves and they have the tools increasingly to do so? Or do you think that uh, we're moving towards this on a larger scale and that, you know, there'll be a, a move from, you know, manufacture, mass manufactured hardware wallets to this becoming so easy that kind of like the nodes, I guess, where more yeah, and more yeah. it's become so easy that it's almost like why wouldn't i if it's an added level of assurance and security yeah i i think i hadn't thought of you know the the kind of progression of nodes a long time but I, maybe that's maybe that's a sense of where this is going i don't think the truth is ultimately going to be somewhere in the middle i don't think a lot of people are ever going to get out of um, custodial bitcoin holding and for them, that's that's adequate. And the neat thing about Bitcoin is we're all free to do what we feel is in our own self-interests. But uh, on the flip side, I think like 
you hear it said, where your money goes, your mind goes. Mm -hmm. And so as people, more people start to accumulate Bitcoin and as the Bitcoin that they accumulate um, grows in value over time, I think people are going to be reevaluating their security setup. They're going to be digging in and trying to find more secure um, uh, models for storing Bitcoin and for, for signing transactions. So I, I do think more people are going to get into this. I just from DMs that I've gotten from people who have said like, I'm not a technical person. I never thought I'd try something like this, but, but um, I like what you're doing and I, I want one of those. So I'm, I'm motivated <laughs> to build one. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I, and it's neat to see, like, I've, I've also had help from like people in the 3d printing community. There's a guy who, uh, who's, you can see in our, our seed center group, his, his name's Richard and he has been like such an immense help in terms of helping me refine the, the design of the orange pill and printing out some of the things that I've, I've uh, designed and giving me feedback in terms of what works and what doesn't and also printing um, things out and sending them to other people on his own dime. Like that's another great story of like somebody just jumping in and, and it goes back to that whole thing of uh, ideas move the needle and like it just motivates people to, to get involved. There's um, one last person I want to mention. His name's Nick. And uh, one of the major uh, pain points with Seed Signer is that because it's running on top of, you know, the full Raspberry Pi OS, it takes a long time to start up. And that's a pain point because after you build this thing and you're, you're powering it on for the first time, you know, you, you plug it in and it's every bit of a full 90 seconds before the screen lights up and you see the menu. So that's a pain point that, that we're significantly trying to work on with the, with the hardware being what it is, you know, it's never going to be like you, you power it on and it's right there, but we can do a lot to improve that. And this um, guy named Nick, who's a developer by trade, you know, jumped in and started offering some improvements. And he's um, right now doing some amazing work towards uh, modularizing the code and running it in multiple threads so that we can drastically improve the, uh, the startup time. So I, I, again, want to acknowledge that there's a lot of people putting effort into this and, and helping it grow into a better version of what it is. Yeah. It's, uh, it always amazes me and inspires me how willing so many people are in this space to contribute uh, often freely to various projects that they just think are meaningful or worthwhile. And, you know, there's so much it's just so great, you know. The, the the common cause seems to be bringing all these people out of the woodwork that with with various specific skill sets to contribute to stuff like this, and ultimately it benefits us all. You know, we 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 get more tools. You know, I I the monic you know the title for this series that I'm going to put this podcast in is Tools of Sovereignty because, you know, I just as much as anyone feel like railing on the problems of the world on a daily basis when I'm scrolling through Twitter and I see all the insane shit that's going on. But I need to remind myself that nothing matters but the degree to which we can establish sovereignty and independence in our own life, or at least not nothing matters, but nothing matters more, perhaps. And it's the tools and the technologies that facilitate that that are ultimately going to um, allow us to do that and that will ultimately, therefore, change the circumstances of things. And so it's, it's just amazing to see people picking, you know, their little niche of how they want to facilitate that and then people coming together to, to actually make it happen. So I think it's awesome what you're doing, man. I, uh, I really appreciate the initiative and the effort. Is there any, you know, place you wanted to direct people either to learn more, to look at the, you know, the stuff you've been working on GitHub, anything like that before we shut her down today? Yeah, no, um, there, there's a website in the works, uh, but at the current time, my Twitter feed and my, my Twitter bio is probably the best place to look. Um, there's going to be a link to the GitHub in there. There's also a link to our Telegram channel where um, got over 100 people in there who were at the very least curious about building a seed signer or who have uh, built one and, and can kind of help people who are running into, you know, how do I solder these pins onto this board or what's the right camera to buy? All those kind of questions that come up once you decide you want to give it a whirl. Um, so yeah, seed signer on Twitter. And uh, if you, you know, Google or DuckDuckGo or whatever, if you Google GitHub seed signer, that'll take you to the right place too. Awesome. 
Well, look, man, I appreciate the work. I appreciate the time. And uh, yeah, good luck with uh, continuing to develop the project. And I'm, I'm sure we'll connect again in the future. Yeah, thanks so much for the opportunity to, to talk with your audience. All right, brother. Take care. You too. Okay.